think I'm a fool? I didn't think so. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like this before. I think you just said something. Think, 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 think. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Keenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That is how First Chronicles chapter 1 dives right in. Yes, you can tell by the music that that is where we are picking up, and I am here today to tell you that God's promises matter more than anything. Something we forget all too often in this world, His promises are more important than anything else that has been said. So, I am going to, as I sit here right now, timer is going, I got my Bible in front, well, technically it's a tablet with a Bible app on it, but you get the gist. We are going to try and get through all of First Chronicles, and I know what you're thinking, you're sitting there thinking, weren't you paying attention as you tried to get through First and Second Kings? Okay, maybe, maybe I was, maybe I wasn't, I'm not always paying attention to what I'm saying and doing, but I think we can do it. The reason I think we can do it is because there's a whole lot of going back again here when it comes into Chronicles, and especially First Chronicles. So, I mentioned that this starts out with a genealogy. It starts with Adam, and then it gives you sons of Japheth, sons of Ham, where all the nations come from. This is your, uh, this is your uh, Genesis 10 rundown, your table of nations, just in slightly uh, more or less detailed form, getting you down to where does Abraham come from? Where do his children go after they have come from him? You see that throughout chapter 1. Now, why? Why does Chronicles do this? Well, Kings is much more of a historical book in that it is interested in giving you the history of the good, the bad, and the ugly from Israel and Judah going down to the destruction and loss of both. Chronicles is not. Chronicles does not care what's going on in Israel unless it interacts and affects what is going on in Judah as well. So, so Chronicles doesn't make adjustments as I go here. Probably a little bit better. So Chronicles doesn't care. Chronicles is less of a history book the way you would think of a history book, like what we had in school. Chronicles is much more of a regal book. It is concerned with what is going on with the royal family of, as it considers, Israel, which would be the kingdom of Judah, the line of David. So, that is what's going on in chapter 1. You get all the way through those descendants. Then you get the sons of Israel, predominantly focusing on who? The sons of Hezron, who were born to him, Jeremiel, Ram, Chelubai. Some of these names, I mean. I get that they have meaning and stuff. They just drive me nuts sometimes because they just don't, as an English speaker, they just don't roll off the tongue a lot of times unless you really practice them. And what do those guys have in common? Well, they get you from Judah to David, which is what we really care about because he is the king of Israel as far as this period of time in history is concerned. Chapter 3 then gets you the family of David. You're going, look, once upon a time, you know, long, long ago, before the earth was cooled, I read my Bible all the way through. And even then, when I was telling myself, this is the only time I'm going to read my Bible through, because so many people do that one time, and that's the end of it. Don't do that. Read your Bible. And what they tell me then is, and I even then, I skipped this. Okay, I get it. You're not a bad person. But if you're not paying attention to the totality of the narrative, 
meaning you're just reading it so you can say you got it read. And look, I'm not telling you that's evil all the time. Sometimes you just need to read it so that you can say you got it read so that you can put stuff into your brain so that you can process it as you go. Sometimes that's necessary. But what I am saying is if you did that and that's all you have ever done and you have not considered the genealogies and their impact, well, then you've missed some things. Why did we go all the way back to Adam? Well, where did Adam come from? You're like, well, he came from God. You're right. God created him. God preserved him and his family, just as he did with Seth and all of those people leading up to Noah, just as he did throughout the flood. Why Abraham and nobody else? Because God redeemed him. God worked through him. God accomplished things through him. He set him aside in salvation. Even with the sons of Abraham, you see the redemption of Jacob. I'm sorry, the redemption of Isaac. Jacob comes from Isaac. But the rejection of Ishmael. So you see Savior and you see Judge. You see the faithfulness of God in giving the land. You see the faithfulness of God in preserving the family, multiplying them, upholding them, delivering them. You see him accomplishing all of these things. In that brief history of the genealogy, you should be reminded of all the work that God has done to get them from nya to nya, to go from there to here in such a way that he is demonstrating who he is and what he has done because it is important to what he will do. So again, you see the accomplishments of God as you get more family lines, all the family lines of the sons of Jacob, chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. So all of these genealogies listed, getting you to King Saul, the people of Jerusalem, reminding you in chapter 9, reminding you of what? That it is God who has built this people. Why do we care? I mean, seriously, why do we care? Because apart from Apart from the work of Yahweh, these people are useless. <laughs> and not only are they useless, they're borderline pointless. And not only are they pointless, they're, they're almost less than use, useless. They are actively subverting and undermining the work of God, seemingly, at every turn. And yet, what's happening? The Creator has preserved them. He has redeemed them. He has been faithful to them in His promises because of His promises. And He has accomplished through them, because he has said that they would. So you get a quick rundown in chapter 10. Saul is defeated. Saul is killed. He is still honored, though, because it is God who is at work amongst not just Saul, not just the kings. This is one of those things. Okay, right here. Pause real fast. Burn this into your brain, because you'll notice with kings, we spent a lot of time talking about, wait for it, kings. Amazing how that book gets named, isn't it? Here in the book of Chronicles, both 1 and 2, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about, you guessed it, kings. And if we're not talking about kings, we're talking about prophets and priests. Very few people. And yet we are talking about them as leaders, and I hesitate to use the term, but almost as avatars for the people. There are thousands, possibly millions of people who we are not paying a little bit of attention to. Not, I mean, not, not even a little bit. God is still faithful to them. God is still sanctifying those amongst them who are his people. The kings become the expression of the people, so to speak. And that was always what it was meant to be. See, there's going to come a time in history, in Christ, where the king 
where the people will be the expression of the king. Too often what you see in Israel's history, though, and in Judah's history here in Chronicles, is the king becomes the expression of the people, and that is how it was never meant to be. As king, responsible to God, responsible to his commandments, as priest, responsible to God, responsible to his commandments, responsible for the sacrifice, for the leading of the people spiritually, militarily, governmentally, that's the priest and the king. They are supposed to lead them in the right direction, not mirror them in their sin. And that becomes the breakdown and part of the problem. So, chapter 11, we start diving into the history. David is king over all Israel. He's gathered at Hebron. You know the history. We covered that in Kings. He eventually conquers Jerusalem. And then you get this list of his mighty men, people who work in his administration, who work in service to him and to Israel. In other words, the blessings of God, because David no matter how good at battle he is, can't win a war by himself. He needs an army. He needs generals. He needs captains. He needs command. He needs all of those things. And they are provided to him. Not because David is just so awesome. Chronicles will gloss over that because Chronicles, again, not real history, but regnal history, royal history. So you're not going to see David's anger towards Nabal. You're not going to see his sin with Bathsheba highlighted. You're not going to get all of that because it doesn't really affect What's going on in the royal family? Not in the terms of how it's chronicled and written down. So, chapter 12, reminder that God is preserving because you see all the supporters that David has. You see all the people that are following after him. The people that have been gathered at Hebron who are going to move up to Jerusalem with him. Then it starts to get interesting. Chapter 13, recounts the history of transporting the ark. Now, we talked about what went wrong of this with this when we went through it in Kings. They carried the Ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio drove the cart. David and all Israel were celebrating before God with their might, even with songs and with lyres, harps, tambourines, cymbals, and trumpets. And of course, what goes on? So you get a little bit of a different detail here. So Uzzah and Ahio are driving the cart, and they hit a bad bump, and Uzzah reaches out to stable, uh, to steady the Ark, and God strikes him down, as he should. And we talked about that's not how the ark was supposed to be moved. There's a reason why there's rings and poles in the thing. You're supposed to carry it. The priests, the Levites, are supposed to carry it because that is the means of transportation that God has ordained. That is how this is always supposed to work and how it is the only way it is ever going to work rightly. So you see the holiness of God on display. The ark, a symbol of worship and salvation because it is where God meets the people. It is where atonement on Yom Kippur is made for the people. It is a symbol of salvation. But when Yahweh is misused, and when your relationship with him is mistreated and used as a thing for you, he is no longer Savior. You guessed it. He is now judge. So, you have a problem here. The ark gets stopped. We take a little bit of a little detour as you get the family of David. One of David's great flaws and, and faults here is apparently he liked the ladies a whole lot. So he starts assembling materials, carpenters to build a house. He gets more and more wives, so he gets children born to him. The family is being built. By who? By who? Just remember that. God who has promised him. God who has anointed him, God who has redeemed him. You also get success in battle. We're defeating the Philistines. Good deal. The Philistines have been a problem for a while. Might be time to whoop them just a teensy bit. And then I get the, uh, the second half of the story. I love this part because you get chapter 15. 
Now David built houses for himself in the city of David, Jerusalem, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said, No one is to carry the ark of God but the Levites, for the Lord chose them to carry the ark of God and to minister to him forever. Ding, 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 ding. Good job. Learn a lesson here. The lesson you should learn is to learn your lessons. And I'm serious about that. David recognizing that God is the creator, God is the preserver, and God is savior and judge. He learned those lessons very quickly with what happens to Uzzah. Difference, the thing that separates David from Saul, and we talked about this. The thing that separates David from Saul is the attitude of the heart. Remember, this is our, our, our phrase is always in effect. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Saul, when confronted with his sin, made excuses, doubled down, worried about his name, his reputation, how people would perceive him. David, when confronted with his sin, did not care how people would receive him, did not care for social convention. You saw this with the child of Bathsheba from his affair that was going to die. Conventional wisdom would say, do everything you can now. And when the child is dead, mourn. Remember, the, the advisors didn't want to tell him the child died because he's mourning so hard before the child's death because he's uh, pleading with God that they were terrified of what might happen if they actually told him the bad news. It didn't matter then. The word had been confirmed. There was nothing else to do but to wait, to wait upon the Lord. David didn't care about social convention. David cared about God. Doesn't mean he's perfect. He's far from it. Doesn't mean he's always right. Far from it. But when confronted with sin and iniquity, Christian, what do we do? Do we double down? Do we make excuses? That's the world talking. Do we repent, trust in Christ's mercy, God's grace, love, redemption, and forgiveness, and then move forward knowing that regardless of what the world says, in Christ, God says, I'm clean. In Christ, God says, I am whole. And in Christ, God says, I am forgiven in his child, standing in his presence, worshiping in his throne room, and secure from all judgment and sin. Care more about what God thinks than what you think. That's what understanding him as Savior is so important and so valid. So, art gets brought in, set up at the tent. The tent is described. You get the praise of God, great psalm of thanksgiving in chapter 16. Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praises to him, speak of all his wonders, glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Seek the Lord in his strength, seek his face continually. Remember his wonderful deeds which he has done, his marvels and judgments from his mouth. O seed of Israel, his servants, sons of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever. And it goes on and on and on for another 20 plus verses. Why should I say remember that? Because, Christian, when you understand who God is, when you understand what God has done, what should you be doing? Complaining? Griping? Wondering why life isn't better? Or praising and worshiping the great God and Savior who has done all of those things? So, in response to that, it came about, chapter 17, when David dealt in his house, dwelt in his house, that David said to Nathan the prophet, Behold, I am dwelling in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under curtains? Nathan said to David, do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. We know that story. That's not true. Nathan didn't stop and ask. Should have stopped and asked. Always stop and ask. It came about the same night the word of God came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell David, my servant, thus says the Lord, that you shall not build a house for me to dwell in, for I have not dwelt in a house since the day that I brought up Israel to this day, but I have gone from tent to tent and from one dwelling place to another. In all the places where I have walked with all Israel, I have I spoken a word with any of them, 
of any of the judges of Israel with whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built for me a house of cedar? Therefore, thus says, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be leader over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a name like the name of the great ones who are in the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and may not be moved again. And the wicked will not waste them any more as formerly, even from the day I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I tell you that the Lord will build the, tell you that the Lord will build a house for you when your days are fulfilled, that you must go up to be with your fathers, that I will set up one of your descendants after you, who will be your sons. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son, and I will not take my loving kindness away from him as I took it away from him who was before you. But I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. We've talked. Solomon gets an earthly fulfillment. He gets to be king. He gets to build the temple. Christ is the fulfillment. The one who will reign eternally. The one who will reign over God's people forever. Where, Christian, are we settled? Securely. It's not now. It's not in the here and now. Israel wasn't settled securely in the here and now, even after the temple. Because they kept turning away from God. They kept walking in their sin and their iniquity. Instead, Christian, our security is in Christ in eternity. Our home is with God in eternity. Longing for the eternal kingdom that is to come. That's what this promise is pointing to. This promise is pointing to God will deliver. God will uphold and ordain. And until that time, we are wanderers. We are sojourners in the land, strangers and aliens, as First Peter put it. So that is what David is taught here. That is what we should be taking from this, reminding that the faithful God will bring about his kingdom at the right time, in the right way, for the right people. He will accomplish all of those things, and in the meantime, it is up to us to trust that he will sanctify us to get there. So, With that said, chapters 18, 19, 20, we get victories in battle as a faithful God accomplishes bringing security to the land, which again, was always temporary, because it's a picture of the eternal security that God will bring when your enemies are defeated. Christian, who are your enemies? Think very carefully about that. Because if you're thinking in the here and now, you probably can come up with one long list, can't you? But if you're thinking in an eternal mindset, who's your enemy? Sin. Satan. His offspring. They are defeated in the kingdom. They are defeated now by Christ. Your, their power over you is removed as you are sanctified. Their pull over you is removed as Christ is Savior as opposed to judge. They cannot harm you. They cannot hurt you. They cannot lead you astray in Christ because you know the way that you are to follow, and you follow that way by following after Christ. Conversely, Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel, 1 Chronicles 21. Does that mean you'll never sin? No. It means that in the midst of that sin, just as David, when he's confronted with the sin, can return to who? Can return to God. So can you, Christian. That's part of this lesson. They're defeated doesn't mean you don't do something stupid every once in a while, and I know the rule is always in effect, don't do dumb things. But you're going to still do dumb things on occasion. The key in the thing, again, that separates the one who is saved from the one who is judged is, what do you do when you recognize the dumb things you've done? How do you react? Do you double down? Do you care more about what people will think about you? Or do you recognize that I have sinned? I have wronged 
the Lord. I have turned away from him, and I am walking the wrong way. I must be cleansed from this. I must be washed anew. That is what Christ's mercies do each and every day. It's what Jeremiah saw when he saw the destruction of Jerusalem, as he saw God's mercies renewing each day. That in the midst of the judgment on that place, there was going to come an eternal place that would not be judged and would not be cast out. Welcome to your life. Welcome to your Christian life being a walk of repentance, recognizing each and every day that I have fallen short and that I stand not because of me, but because of Christ. Chapter 22, David prepares for temple, temple building. I love this. David said, this is the house of the Lord God, and this is the altar for the burnt offering for Israel. So David gave orders to gather the foreigners who were in the land of Israel and set stone cutters and hew out stones to build the house of God. He charges Solomon with the task, lays, gives him the plan. So in other words, David's not going to do the work, but David's going to do a lot of the work. <laughs> Meaning, when we say Solomon does the work, Solomon does the putting together. David assembles. Because David always, even though he wouldn't get to do the work, understood that he has a legacy, that God is long-suffering and patient, and that he will accomplish these things. So, 23, Solomon is put in charge. David's not dead yet, but Solomon is basically set up as next in line. And we get a non-evil census. Why? Because Solomon needs to know who's working around here. So, 23 is temple workers, Levites, and things like that. 24 is their divisions, how they're going to function. The musicians, how they are going to be aligned, how they're going to function. People to keep the gates, people for the treasury, commanders of the army, officers for the tribes, various people who will give advice, counsel. All of that goes through chapter 27. Solomon's going to need that because David's lived it. David has watched the bureaucracy of Israel grow under his watch. He doesn't need a rundown because he knows it all. Solomon doesn't. So we need to know who's there and what they're going to do and how it's going to work. 28, this is, this is good. <clears throat> David kind of giving a final word. David rose to his feet and said, Listen to me, my brethren and my people. I had intended to build a permanent home for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. So I made preparations to build it. But God said to me, You shall not build a house for my name because you are a man of war and have shed blood. Yet the Lord, the God of Israel, chose me from all the house of my father to be king over Israel forever. For he has chosen Judah to be a leader. Notice how we're going back to the history and the preserving work of God. And in the house of Judah, my father's house, and among the sons of my father, he took pleasure in me to make me king over all Israel. Of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many, he has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the, of the Lord over Israel. He said to me, your son Solomon is the one who shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be a son to me, and I will be a father to him. See David understanding the earthly portion of the covenant there. I will establish his kingdom forever if he resolutely performs my commandments and my ordinances as is now done. Notice how he puts David notices the condition on the earthly fulfillment of that covenant. So even David understands that Solomon can't do that in his own strength. So now in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord and in the hearing of our God, observe and seek after all the commandments of the Lord your God so that you may possess the good land and bequeath it to your sons after you forever. In other words, they'll stand. Why? Because they have been faithful in following after God, and God, who we know is faithful, will follow after his promises. 
As for you, my son Solomon, know that know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord God searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will, he will reject you forever. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be courageous and act. Dun, dun, dun. David has run down every single one of our foundations right there in that little speech. Not some of them, all of them. He understands that it is God who has done all of this. It is God who has preserved the nation. It is God who has preserved his family. It is God who has saved him and judged the enemies. It is God who has been faithful to all of the promises, going all the way back to the promise given through Jacob to Judah. It is God who, down through the ages, has done all of this and has not turned to the left or to the right, but has been faithful in all of these things. It is God who has done this. And it is God who will continue to do this for the people if the people will recognize all of those things and walk in a way that is pleasing to God and not pleasing in this world. So David has a final prayer and then dies. I mean, that's, that's your punchline. That's the end of First Chronicles because it reminds you that what? It's not about David. It's not about Solomon. It's not even about Israel. It's about Israel as Israel is an eternal kingdom. It's about Israel as they are the people of God, called by his name, sealed in their hearts, not in their skin. The message that the prophets will be very faithful to deliver because Israel is going to misunderstand this and make this about a physical nation, about a people called by God in a land. No, it's a people called by God in eternity. That is what it has always been about. So what have we learned here today, children? God has not forgotten his work. God will accomplish all that he has promised, and God's schedule is well beyond our understanding. Hopefully that was a simple little rundown. I told you we'd get through it all, and you doubted me. For shame. For shame. So questions, comments, complaints, send them to info at practicaltheologyministries.com. You can go to the website, see the resources, all the good stuff that we got going on, which admittedly isn't much, but look, when you got, you know, people living lives and teaching six times a week, there's only so many hours in the day to do stuff. So this is kind of the main thing we do, and we have fun with it. Plan is to be back tomorrow, but, you know, life gets in the way. If nothing else, we'll be here Thursday to run down some fun stories of the week. So until we meet again, read your Bible. Do you good. Bye.